You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Michaela Rossner at SFNSF. She's written novels including The Stars Compel, The Stars Dispose, and Vanishing Point. Thank you for joining me, Michaela. Thank you for having us. Uh, Michaela, your story was told in the second person, which is a really unusual perspective. What made you choose that? Um, I choose it. I teach creative writing, and one of the things I teach is point of view, and it's it's always very interesting to teach to try and convey what second person can do. Um, it gives this kind of eerie, kind of creepy, usually has kind of a sort of eerie, creepy shimmer to it, depending on how, how you're focusing it. And then I realized that I'd never actually written a story in second person point of view. And this particular one is a story I'd been thinking about for a while. And it seemed just perfect for it. It would get across that kind of projecting the story onto the reader. And so that's why I chose it for this one. Well, I thought it was really effective because that kind of commanding point of view mm-hmm. is uh, almost a reflection of the, what the fish are commanding us to do. Exactly. And it's very, very creepy. Now, uh, you must have done a bit of research about this. There's a lot, of, that's a, there's a lot packed into that story, yeah, isn't there? I, I did a lot of uh, Yeah, I, I'm a research junkie. So any, um, I started this story because two of the, in, the two inciting incidents in the story about the Hasidic carp and the... Um, Kenyan tuna with the Koran on its scales are actually documented whether they're real or not, or news stories. You can actually look them up online. You're a Fortean uh, researcher, I take yeah, it. Yeah, well, no, they just showed up, I mean, yeah, kind of, but it, it did precipitate into regular news, and I'd made note of them, and I'd kind of, I said, this is just, this is proof of God. When God gives writers things like this happening in the news, and he's saying, you know, write a story about it. So I waited for several years, figuring there would be a third communicating fish news story and uh, I finally got tired of waiting and just decided to write the story anyway. So two, yeah, two actual news stories that you can Google and find out about are, are what got me to start writing, reading, you know, writing this. But then you had to do, I would presume, yeah. a bunch of research yeah. on fish yeah. and yeah. religions. That's yes. really interesting. Well, I knew a lot about religions, but the fish part was really fun and it is true that butterfly fish are actually notorious whisperers. Uh, according to who? <laughs> um, uh, to oh. a theologist. They have, they communicate. Fish communicate by vibrating their swim bladders, and they'd always thought the butterfly fish were very social fish because they always get together. They'll go up and kind of, you know, be really close to each other. And what they found is they have very weak swim bladders, so that to, in other words, to hear each other, they actually have to get up close. And that their their fish bladder communication is actually the equivalent <laughs> of whispering. So they actually butterfly fish are actually are notorious whisperers. So that was the kind of stuff I got to research that I had. A heck of a lot of fun with doing this. So, well, the, this story has a wonderful feel to it. <clears throat> you take something that sounds kind of that, in fact, is a news story, and then you slowly transform our world and our vision of the world, and you do it kind of insidiously with yeah. this commanding language. Could you talk about creating that kind of transformative aspect of the story? Um, a lot of it has to do with language itself, that I was, because this story is so much about religion and in a sense it is a satire on religion, um, there's so many, um, there's so many words that, that come out of the religious lexicon that you can kind of use. So a, a lot of that precipitated into the language and also just using language that, um, 
had to do with fishes, like being able to use words like unfathomable, you know, <laughs> just words that reverberate with that kind of, um, you know, with, that, with the story. And you can kind of slip in kind of fairly unobtrusively. <laughs> so that was pretty deliberate. Well, one of the things I like that was, I think, remarkably successful was the humor in that story. It's very, very funny, and it's very understated. You play it, really, with such a straight face. And could you, did you, when you started this story, did you think this was going to be a funny story? No, I, th I knew there, there would be, I mean, the whole thing is just so outrageous. I mean, <laughs> I made it a, a, a Hasidic carp, you know, crying out in a New York fish market. There's, you know, there's already, it's already pretty hilarious right there. So there had to be, you know, I just thought it would turn into kind of a black humor piece. Because there's just, the more you think about anything possible with this stuff, the humor's there and everything else is there. So it just kind of fell into place naturally. You know, it strikes me that a story like this, um, it found publication in uh, Postscripts, right? Mm -hmm. I, this wouldn't be out of place in the New Yorker, I would think. I, oh, would, I, I would rather I read that. I wish somebody told me that. I would have sent it there first. Um, yeah, that would have been that would have been nice. But um, I'm very pleased to get it in Postscripts, which is a wonderful, pub, you know, they're a wonderful press. So I'm very pleased to have placed it with them. And I have I have no American publisher, so maybe I'll try. <laughs> maybe if if once they release me off of first publication things, maybe I'll try the New Yorker. Thank you for the idea. Well, I, it, one of the, what I was kind of getting at was that um, that story is, uh, although it, in a way, I don't even really think it's a genre fiction story. Yeah. It's, uh, how would you describe that story? It's just, it's spe to me it's speculative fiction because speculative fiction is anything really strange and out there. So, <laughs> so to me it, it fits under that vast umbrella, mm -hmm. you know, of, it's, just really strange stuff. <laughs> and that's essentially what I'm interested in writing. It's really strange stuff. Now, um, that was a wonderful short story, but you've written many novels. Well, I've written four novels. Mm -hmm. I've, or I've, I've written more novels. I've published four novels. Mm -hmm. so. And I, I started out mostly with long forms, and it's actually taken me a while to write, to really get in sync with writing short forms, and now I'm actually doing more short form writing. It's a really different uh, kind of uh, writing. Could you talk about the difference for you? Because that story was very tight. Yeah. There was not a word in there that didn't belong there or that yeah. could have been left out either. Yeah, it was, it's sort of the difference between writing short poetry and writing epic verse. <laughs> I mean, it's just with a novel you can stretch out and you, you know, really bring in tons and stuff, tons and tons of stuff, multiple plot lines. And with a, a short story, you've, you can do a lot of explorations, but you stay pretty much on point. And the fun thing with this particular story was every little bit that came up as I started to write it and do research, I would just think through every possibility that I could think of and then just see whatever you know, fit, fit with what I wanted to do. Well, um, could you talk about, um, a as a speculative fiction writer, do you, <clears throat> and when you start out with a story, do you think, well, do you think about uh, target publications, or do you just go? I, I pretty much go. I mean, I'll start with a generating idea, and then it, it often takes me many drafts to get where I... I, I love nifty ideas. I love um, dealing with setting and concept and, you know, like in this case, the whole theme of religion and all the research. And, and so often I have to be kind of drug kicking and screaming to kind of engage with the actual narrative <laughs> because I get so you know, carried away with everything else. And then I kind of eventually focus in and pull a narrative together. So it's, you know, that's kind of the process for me. But I, I love, um, right now I'm working with um, another piece that will probably end up being a chapbook, which is a, a hagiology. 
but instead of the lives of Catholic saints, it's a hagiology, it's the lives of hags. <laughs> and and it, it's a multi-layered narrative, but in a relatively short form. Uh, you teach. Could you talk about what uh, effect teaching has on your writing? Um, it's made me like really clarify what I'm doing. And I also recently, the last few years, I actually went back to school and got another MFA, this time in creative writing, which mm. threw me in with a creative community, which I hadn't had an opportunity to be with a lot the last 20 years. And... Um, as I did that, as I was learning, and at the same time I was also teaching, the more I teach other people, the more it kind of clarifies what I'm doing with my own writing. There's like a constant kind of feedback loop. So I found it actually very helpful for my own writing to teach. And finally, why the Brazen Hussies? How, how are you in the Brazen Hussies, and what are they uh, well, for I should you? Well, really, I should really let Pat. Pat actually wrote the manifesto, so I'll let her speak more about it. But essentially, um, and I'm sure she'll say somewhat the same thing, is we just found as women that it's... Um, I think it's kind of maybe maybe it's not so much for younger generations of women, but for our generations that we were you were just raised not to put yourself forward. You know, I mean, we weren't raised to be exactly old-fashioned modest, but you still it's very hard to, for women, at least of my age, to get out and promote yourself. It just feels it's hard. It's hard to make yourself do that, and we found that it was much easier to promote, promote somebody else. And that we found by banding together, we could promote each other. <laughs> and we could also be, and we were each other's support system, that we could be, um, it's much easier to go out and promote your own work if you have, you know, you bring your own cheering section with you and you're cheering them. So we're kind of brazenly promoting ourselves. And we find when we do things like these readings, we'll often, like, talk about each other's writings first. And it's, it's much easier for me to just say wonderful things about Lisa's and Pat's work. Because, you know, yeah. I've mm -hmm. loved their work for over 20 years now, and then it is to talk about my own writing. So it's, it's kind of a nice kind of mutual, kind of mutual benefit society, I guess you could say. A good feedback loop. It's a very good feedback loop, <clears throat> exactly. And unfortunately, I don't live on the Bay Area anymore, so our opportunities, this is what's so wonderful doing this. We don't have the opportunities we have in the past, but it's still always great when we get a chance to do it. And we, you know, like everyone else, we're doing more stuff online, etc. I've been speaking with Michaela Rossner. Her books include The Stars Compel, The Stars Dispose, Vanishing Point, and you can look for her new story coming forth in uh, Postscripts. Yes. Thank you, Thank Michaela. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.